Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. As we age, many worry about how our lives will end and how we will die. Medicare statistics indicate most health care dollars will be spent on our last days and weeks of our life although that stage may not be regarded as quality of life or how our passing is imagined. My guest today is Dr. Jamie Beversdorf, board-certified physician in internal medicine, pediatrics, and hospice and palliative care at Unity Point Health. And, full disclosure, Dr. Beversdorf is my niece. She's going to talk about what is meant by end-of-life care in the ICU and choices of treatment options healthcare providers face in these circumstances. She will also talk about the role of the patient, care partners, family members, and health team members involved in the decision-making process during this critical time. So welcome, Dr. Beversdorf, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity. I'd also just like to mention that anything that I talk about today does not reflect the views of Unity Point. It reflects um, my experience and my education. So thank you. Thank you for that. And so I always like to kind of lay the groundwork when I do my interviews and no different in this particular topic. It's very serious. And so I'd like to hear from you. How have you seen the use of medical techniques and pharmaceuticals and devices? How, how have all of those impacted the aging population? So there's an amazing amount of different technologies that are available now. There's um, cardiac procedures and cardiac techniques that we can now use with very little intervention, we no longer need to open up someone's chest to a change of valve. Um, we have medications that for memory, we have um, transplants, we have, you know, things like dialysis, many things that um, now extend the life of people beyond what we were ever able to do in the past. So, uh, so ext essentially extending life longer um, than previously thought. And to that point, Dr. Beversdorf, do you, would you say that the, the use of these choices has improved the quality of life for older adults? Yes, but with the caveat that we evaluate the patient for when it is appropriate. So using the cardiac device for someone who has the 
physical capabilities that they are going to be able to live longer as they don't have other comorbidities that cause problems. So we evaluate them carefully. For example, someone who might get one of these uh, cardiac devices um, has no other significant comorbidities. They are not currently receiving dialysis. They're able to be functional. They're walking around. They're already living a, a fairly functional life with the exception of this one issue. Or for instance, um, we're using the memory medications for somebody with dementia at the appropriate stage of dementia. Um, that we're using the transplant for someone who um, has already gone through the process of evaluation that they are meeting the appropriate criteria. So yes, we are improving the quality of life for these older adults when we are evaluating them appropriately and using them appropriately, not just throwing them willy-nilly at random people without the appropriate thought process going, uh, without the appropriate thought process um, being undertaken. And I think what I'm hearing you say then is, is that they may not necessarily be as effective when used near or at the end of life. What is your experience in that realm? Right. And I think that's probably at the heart of the matter. For example, um, and I'll use this example of a elderly person with dementia um, who no longer eats or drinks. That is part of dementia. That's one of the end stages of dementia in which someone is no longer eating or drinking. And as well-intentioned as a family member may be, well, why don't we just put a tube into their stomach to help feed them. Um, That way they'll get food. In reality though, that does not necessarily help that person. By artificially feeding someone, it does not decrease their risk of aspiration pneumonia. Aspiration pneumonia is when the food uh, comes up the esophagus, the part where the food goes down into the stomach, because they don't protect their airway, then the food goes into the lungs, causing aspiration pneumonia. Um, and also because of this stage of dementia, their body doesn't utilize food. Their body, uh, it may cause more harm than good. They're at end of life. They're at their end stage of dementia. So one of these technologies of putting in a feeding tube may not be helpful. And in fact, it's actually counterproductive in end-stage dementia. Similarly, um, someone who uh, may have a valve problem, but then concurrently also has kidney failure, who is also on a breathing tube in the ICU, trying to fix a valve, this is not going to be overall helpful in this situation and may be dangerous because now we're going through a surgical procedure. So um, while these are fantastic things that we can do, it's about right patient, right indication, right time, not necessarily, well, we can do this fantastic thing. Just because we can do this fantastic thing doesn't mean that we should be doing this fantastic thing. Now, you've mentioned these uh, decisions that are made or could be made in the intensive care unit. And because you are a physician in the intensive care unit where you are located, talk more about why why might these choices be especially significant when they're occurring in the intensive care unit, a very special place where different things happen in the hospital than, say, on a regular ward? Yeah. Being in the intensive care unit 
already, you're in the intensive care unit because at least one organ system is failing, whether it's your respiratory system and you need high amounts of oxygen or you have a tube in your throat helping you breathe or your cardiovascular system is failing and you need blood pressure medication to help keep your blood pressure up. Um, you are already in the intensive care unit because uh, at least one organ system is failing, or maybe more. Um, and being in the intensive care unit is incredibly stressful. Simply just being admitted um, is it's a high level of fear both for the patient and the family. There's already a level of fear and level of panic. And at this point, uh, many people are looking for anything and everything to possibly help the situation without understanding or recognizing that it may or may not be helpful. Oh, the kidneys are failing. Let's do dialysis. Let's get a transplant. Well, these are not... And, and then because everyone is very panicked and very fearful, trying to have those conversations when things are already at a heightened level of fear and panic is very difficult uh, to do. Um, and then some of these interventions can also be counterproductive. Well, we can't do dialysis, for example, when someone's blood pressure is extremely low and they're requiring blood pressure medications to keep it up. So a lot of these wonderful, fantastic things that medical technology can do are not always possible, despite what the media and wonderful TV commercials um, seem to be telling us. So, uh, yeah, does that sort of help explain? Yes, yes. And in fact, I wanted to interject a, a question, too, because I am aware that you have been in the intensive care unit as a physician caring for patients with COVID. And I am I am eager, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, to hear your reaction about the choices um, ab about using extraordinary means uh, in the intensive care unit for those who were um, who, who, uh, who have COVID. It'd be interesting to hear what your experience has been um, with these kinds of patients. The other thing before I answer that, just to interject, is when you are coming to the intensive care unit, you are already on a path to dying, and we're trying to stop that. Um, something about you is dying, and the whether it's your heart, it's your lungs, and we're trying all measures to stop that. And many of the patients in the ICU have already may already have another organ system that is already failing. They may already have heart failure. They may already have another organ system that isn't working, compounding the problem. With regards to COVID, COVID's in a bit of a unique box right now because it simply is a new medical situation that we all know came out um, you know, late 2019, early 2020. So we're still trying to figure out treatments um, to cure it, whereas right now the best medication for it is prevention, which is vaccination. And in the early uh, treatments for it, we were even using something called ECMO, which is extracorporeal um, membrane oxygenation, which is heart-lung bypass to oxygenate blood um, outside of the lungs because the lungs simply were too 
harmed by COVID to even oxygenate. And that's very uh, rare to use. Um, well, I, I would say most hospitals don't have the capability to, to do that. Some hospitals have more experience with it than others. Most hospitals don't use it very commonly. Um, but extraordinary means with different types of ventilation, the ECMO, um, definitely in the beginning, a lot of different therapies. I think as we're in you know, year two of it, treatment is becoming more standardized, but we still don't have a good cure for it. And I think eventually we'll have a better treatment for it. But again, it's, it's going to be, and this is my opinion, and I'm not an infectious disease doctor, similar to influenza, the best treatment will be getting your, your COVID shot, um, as opposed to um, not getting your shot, because even now, the folks that are in the ICUs are the folks that are not vaccinated. And it's horrible young people, you know, 20s, 30s, who are dying from it. And it is extraordinary means where we're having to put tracheostomies and G-tubes in. And if they're lucky that they're able to go to rehab to get better after they, um, you know, are able to leave. So to that point, what you're describing and what you had said a little earlier, Dr. Beversdorf, about the folks who are patients who are coming to the ICU, there is some aspect that that they are dying. Would you say overall that all ICU patients who are dying necessarily recognize that fact when they're taken to the intensive care unit? I think some do. I don't think I'll do. Um, but, you know, by being in the ICU, you've had, a, you know, some have had a cardiac arrest. Um, some have had their oxygen levels drop, you know, to extraordinarily low levels. Um, I don't know how many people have recognized that fact. And sometimes they don't recognize that fact because maybe this is their third trip to the ICU and they've made it out several other times. Um, and it's, oh, I've been here before. Yep, I know the drill. And their families also, well, they've been here before. Yep, okay. And so the expectation, well, they made it out before. It'll be fine. So yes and no. And to that point then, do you check with the patients? Are many of them or do most of the patients have some type of advanced directive? And and if so, how does that that fact uh, help the decision making in in the ICU, especially if they it looks like maybe they're not going to make it out. I mean, talk about the advanced directive. How much of a role does that play in the care that you provide your patients? Having advanced directives is extremely helpful. I would say maybe fifty percent of patients have advanced directives. The patient may be a little unclear on what exactly advanced directives are. And advanced directives, that term covers a couple of things, including um, a healthcare power of attorney, a living will, something called a pulsed form, which is physician orders for life sustaining treatment, and then um, in uh, recommendations for mental health orders. And having those helps incredibly 
incredibly with decision making in an ICU. So if a person isn't able to speak for themselves, having a healthcare power of attorney, um, someone who knows their wishes, um, ideally knows their wishes and someone that has uh, spoken with the patient about their wishes to speak for them when they're not able to speak, that's incredibly helpful. Um, and then having a living will, which um, indicates their wishes if they have a terminal illness or um, in a coma, that is also incredibly helpful as well. So it gives us as the ICU team um, an idea of what we should be doing, how we should be doing it, um, and uh, just some direction um, on this patient's care path. And so if I understand correctly, if you are aware, you and your fellow team members are aware that a patient has an advanced directive and you are familiar with what it says there, that should and does override the preferences of anybody else involved in the patient's care, the family or caregiver or anybody else? It does. It does. So if uh, my patient says that I do not want uh, long-term artificial nutrition, if I am in a persistent vegetative state, then his healthcare power of attorney cannot say, well, I want a feeding tube inserted to provide uh, long-term nutrition. So if, so, um, so if he stated one thing, his healthcare power of attorney cannot overrule that. Okay. So taking this one step further, since there are individuals who come to the ICU and have left, as you stated earlier, uh, is there any effort by staff members or anyone to find out or maybe have a, a patient write a, an advanced directive you know, while they're there? Can, can they write one while they're in the ICU if they express their, their wishes? And, and how would that be done if, if it, in fact, can be done? I'm not familiar with anyone specifically writing full advanced directives while in an ICU. And, and maybe others are. I think that would get a little tricky having a legal document done because you could question it saying, well, they're sick, they have an infection, are they mentally competent to make this document? Uh, there could be a lot of arguments to it. What we do try to discuss, though, is a patient's code status when they come into the ICU. Um, which is not a legal document. It's a verbal discussion. It's not something that has to be signed by the patient or a family member. We the and and I know we'll be discussing that in a little bit. But an advanced directive typically um, involves lawyers um, and legal documentation. Typically, not always. And so, I, I think that would be a little questionable, particularly if there's any question amongst family members to have uh, legal documents done while someone is sick in the ICU, it would be much more ideal to have those documents drawn up while a patient is outside of the hospital um, and in their typical state of health. Good advice. I hope that our listeners are uh, remembering uh, your advice about that. You have mentioned already, Dr. Beaversdorf, some 
uh, different possibilities as to the status and and what can be ordered or not ordered. And we need kind of a little glossary of terms here. Um, as I was preparing these questions, I read about a DNR order. There's something called DNR comfort care, DNR comfort care arrest. Could you explain w- what those different terms mean? Absolutely. Uh, so when anyone is admitted to the hospital, whether it's to the ICU or to the general floor, uh, part of the admission questions include asking what a person's code status is. And that means what would you want to happen if you were to suddenly uh, have your heart stop or you were to stop breathing? And that's sort of a, a scary question to ask anyone. And when I when I was a medical student, I can remember uh, being told by like my intern and my supervising resident to go ask them about their code status. And I didn't ask it in a very uh, uh, friendly way. And I remember freaking out um, the patient. So how I typically ask it now is, We ask this of everyone who comes into the hospital, whether they come in for a broken leg or they come in for any other reason. It's a standard question of if your heart were to stop or you were to stop breathing, would you is it would you want us to try to restart your heart with shocks and medications and CPR and use a breathing tube to get you breathing? So code status, meaning a full code would mean that we would do all of those things, CPR, like you see on TV, um, shocks, the, you know, the, when they say clear, uh, the shocks that make the body bounce, medications like epinephrine and a tube to, in the throat to uh, give oxygen to the lungs. That's something called a full code. Now there are variations on this. Uh, Some patients say, well, I just want you to do CPR, or I just want shocks, or I just want medications, or uh, none of that, but it's okay if I go on a ventilator. And when patients tell me that, I tend to ask, okay, can you tell me a little bit more about your thought process? Because only doing one of those things or two of those things doesn't work as well as all of them. So you want me to put you on a ventilator, but I can't, or, you know, push oxygen into your lungs, but I can't compress the heart during CPR to circulate the oxygen. So that's not going to help you. Or CPR, but no tube. I, they, they're designed to all work together. Um, and so when someone says one but not the other. It's it's not really a buffet table. It's more of a, it's a full course meal. They all work together. Uh, You wouldn't take your mashed potatoes without your gravy. You want to have everything together. So, uh, so people do have variations on it for different reasons, but they are best if they all work together. A do not resuscitate means if a DNR means if um, my heart stops or I stop breathing, you let me go. Um, you don't try to bring me back. You don't give me medications for um, my heart. You don't try to stick a breathing tube in me. Uh, you don't do anything. 
DNI means do not intubate. And this is where things really need to be discussed. Okay, well, do not intubate. And so with hospitals, then we have to make notations. Okay, do not intubate, um, but CPR, medications, and shocks. So again, we would have a discussion on, okay, tell me your thought process on why we're doing one versus the other. And people, some patients have thought this out and they can tell me why. Well, I have COPD, I have severe COPD, so I know that if I get put on a ventilator, I know that I will never come off a ventilator. Okay, I understand. Thank you for sharing. Um, And then I note that. It's obvious that there are many different decisions, not to mention the disease process that's going on with the patient already, and then to have to make these kinds of decisions without necessarily knowing what they're talking about. Is that true? That is true. That is true. And the other things that come into play are different iterations of this where, um, well, we can move you to the ICU and you can be a do not resuscitate, but we could give you some medications to keep your blood pressure up. Well, but if I'm giving you medications to keep your blood pressure up, that's part of resuscitation. And there's lots of very different choices and things that happen along the way that parts really work best together, um, I guess, as best to say. Well, that's that's very helpful, Dr. Beversdorf. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about options that people can bring to the ICU as patients after this break. But I just wanted to tell those who might have tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Jamie Beversdorf, who is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, pediatrics, and hospice and palliative care at Unity Point Health. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. are talking with Dr. Jamie Beaversdorf, who is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, pediatrics, and hospice and palliative care at Unity Point Health. And before the break, we discussed some scenarios that occur in the intensive care unit and the use of an advanced directive. But Dr. Beaversdorf, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is there are other documents that sometimes um, state Uh, the wishes of an individual patient. One of them is a living will, and there's something called durable power of attorney. Talk about what each of these represent for a patient, and what's your experience? Do most patients have one or the other of these? What have have you uh, seen? Right. Um, So a living will falls under the 
term advanced directives. The advanced directives cover healthcare power of attorney, living will, post physician orders for life sustaining treatment, as well as uh, directives for mental health care, which include whether or not a person would want ECT um, or admission to mental health facility. And with and patients don't always understand what all of these mean. They've done them, but they don't understand them and sometimes are often confused with code status. And I remember specifically when one patient was admitted, I asked, okay, um, uh, have you thought about what your code status is? Oh yeah, I have that. Okay, tell me a little bit more. Yeah, no, I've got the documents. Okay, that's great. I, I don't have them. Can you tell me more? Well, I, I don't want to be on a ventilator if there's no hope. Okay, I, I appreciate that. But if something were to happen to you right here, right now, uh, and eventually, it so there was basically a little bit of confusion on the topic. So, um, so I appreciate that the gentleman had made efforts, but it wasn't always, uh, people don't always understand exactly uh, the difference in the terms, which is okay. We just need to work on that. But it was interesting today as I uh, was prepping for this, I looked up definition of living will, and I think today was the first time I'd ever seen um, the definition of living will talking about what sort of death delaying procedures you would like if you were in a coma or terminal illness. Typically, it's life-sustaining procedures. Uh, today was the first time I saw death delaying procedures, which was interesting to me. But the living will is a document that you have uh, typically signed with witnesses and attorney that if you are um, have a terminal illness or in a coma, what do you want or do not want? For instance, uh, artificial nutrition, um, do you want to be on a ventilator? That's what the uh, living will uh, describes. Or do you want everything and anything possible done? That's what that document discusses. And then it is up to the healthcare power of attorney to carry out those wishes. And that is a nice segue into moving into the other possible um, individuals who might be involved in the patient care. As you had mentioned earlier, the advanced directive supersedes any other kind of uh, wish or desire from other people and uh, is kind of the roadmap for what's done for the patient. So I want to move into how a physician provides care for a patient if a care partner or a family member objects to what the patient has uh, stated in, in his or her advanced directive. What do you do in a situation like that? It's really hard. Um, I think one of the things that I, as well as other physicians, have heard is Healthcare power of attorneys feel that, or you know, family members feel that if they allow a person to pass, that they're killing them, and that if a person's document says, um, if there's a very little chance that I'm going to make a meaningful recovery, please let me go. 
And the healthcare power of attorney has a sense of, um, well, I'm killing them. I'm not, I'm not fighting for them. When in reality, carrying out the wishes of this person is actually loving them and honoring them. It's, it's not a means of, um, killing them. You're, you're doing the most honorable thing by caring and loving for them. Um, that's often the feeling that we hear from a lot of healthcare power of attorneys, um, that, and it's important to, and that person was ideally when you're choosing your healthcare power of attorney, you're choosing someone that, you know, can carry out those wishes, um, uh, so for example, um, on a personal note, Cheryl, I think I had mentioned to you that, you know, I was my dad, your brother's healthcare power of attorney, because he knew that I would be able to carry out his wishes. Typically, if there's no healthcare power of attorney, the, if it, no healthcare power of attorney, then the default is to a spouse and then to a, uh, adult child, then to, uh, living parents. Um, it varies by state, but that's typically how it goes. So that person is designated as the person you trust to carry things out. So if you're not able to provide care, or excuse me, if the family members object to the patient's advanced directives, um, there's typically, a, there's meetings, there's a trying to understand why there's an objection to uh, the advanced directives and trying to understand and hopefully there can be a resolution when, but again, ultimately we're following the patient's advanced directives. Sometimes in rare, rare instances, there may have been a recent conversation or a recent discussion that uh, the patient changed their mind or there was something that happened very recently, but that's to, uh, that is in contrast to the advanced directives, but that's very rare. And if there's a major conflict that can't be resolved, sometimes a bioethics team may get involved. So given that scenario, then would you as the physician then have a consultation with like the care partner or the family members about treatment options just to make sure that everybody understands that this is the way that it's going to go. I mean, I'm just curious as to what the what happens uh, in these kind of circumstances. Do you meet then with the family, the the caregiver? Uh, what 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 occurs? Definitely, we um, we have conversations. We meet with the family. Um, we again try to come to a resolution. If there's still significant conflict, it. it it's a little hard to answer this question because each situation is different. So if there's still significant conflict, I mean, always, we continue working with the family every day, talking pretty much every ICU talks with family members, uh, designated family members every day. We have family meetings to try to discuss, you know, goals of care. There's often also processes in place that if there is no advanced directive, which is a little different topic, um, Family members have the option of trying to arrange transport to different hospitals. I know this is a little bit off topic, but with advanced directives that are signed, we're obligated to go with the patient's advanced directives, um, but continuing to keep the family updated. Um, again, trying to work with them, trying to help understand um, 
but and it's unfortunate when we can't come to a resolution or an agreement but it we still continue trying to talk with the family and work with them and yes i i do understand that you know certainly it's it's on a case by case basis i just was curious and i'm sure probably other people are too sometimes there's a really genuine disagreement uh, because family members really have difficulty, I would assume, I'm sure, uh, letting go and or the care partner. And if there is a, a disagreement there, I would imagine that you really have to spend time with with the family and with the care partner talking about mortality and death, just so that everybody kind of understands and is on the same page. I uh, I, I would imagine that is, is quite a difficult situation. It does. It's very difficult. It's loss, it's grief, it's anger. In And in some instances, we've used the bioethics team. In some instances, we've had family members utilize uh, the court. And it varies. We want to honor the patient and their wishes and the the patient doesn't have a voice then and often with the court the court will not hear from the medical professionals they will hear from the family and so it it gets really rough because we're trying to advocate for the patient and their wishes and this is again speaks back to the point of when you choose your healthcare power of attorney ensuring that it's someone who will carry out your wishes so um, but yeah, it, I think these are some of the biggest ones that we struggle with is when the patient has already spoken their wishes and their goals and the healthcare team um, is in agreement and in alignment with those goals and the family is struggling. I mean, struggling to the point of disagreement and standing in the way of proceeding down the care path. And in this whole setting, is there also the possibility of of a difference of opinion regarding end-of-life communications among the members of the medical team? Are there different issues? Uh, what your uh, position is, might that differ from another physician or another type of healthcare provider who is in the ICU? Does that occur? Not typically with the ICU medical team. Sometimes we will see different consultative services offer therapies that may or may not be helpful. Um, For instance, as I brought up before, dialysis, where it may be helpful in the short term, but may not be a long-term solution. So there may be times where Therapies are offered by consultative services that, that there's a question of, well, okay, but we're, we're not nephrology. We're the ICU team. But typically, there's generally consensus amongst the team members. Um, there may be differences in, in certain aspects of the patient's care, like well, this antibiotic versus that antibiotic or this ventilator setting versus that ventilator setting. But overall, uh, just generally with management, there's typically consensus on patient care. 
and I was even going to take it to the extreme, if there's a DNR order, everybody abides by that. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. If there is a DNR order, we abide by that. Um, absolutely. That is, uh, we don't go changing things. No. And you've mentioned off and on about the legal implications of deciding appropriate treatment um, f- for a dying patient. If if that person doesn't have an advanced directive and, and say, maybe there isn't any family member to argue one way or the other, it, it do, does it happen often that there are legal implications of deciding the, the best treatment for a, a patient in the ICU or not so much? What, what, have you, what have you experienced? No, not so much. It, the, the frequency with which we have um, the court involved in patient care is very minimal. Um, it's very minimal to have that happen. Um, you can actually see it actually right now with the media, um, the frequency with which you see, oh, the court has ordered ivermectin be given because, you know, somebody, you know, the, the physicians refuse to give ivermectin because it's not indicated. It is not indicated in COVID. And then so the family member said, I want ivermectin given. And so they had went to court to do it. So the frequency with which, you know, the court gets involved in you know, medical matters while somebody's actively in the hospital is very infrequent. So, um, but no, and the only other time that we have the court or legal involved is if we have somebody from um, like the penitentiary system that is hospitalized, then we have, you know, the court and legal things involved. Okay. Another aspect that I would assume that you and your colleagues face is the religious and the spiritual considerations of, of a patient. My goodness, we're in a country where there are so many different cultures and they may be patients in the ICU. What happens? Is the influence of these religious and spiritual considerations really evident? Is it something that you as a physician have to understand when when you know caring for a patient who's facing death? How, how do you handle that? I don't think physicians as a whole do a great job with this. Um, I think it tends to get asked to be managed by social workers or uh, the chaplain support or whoever is their their spiritual leaders. Um, However, I think it's very important for us to be aware of, for instance, um, we may have someone who is Buddhist who believes that their suffering um, is here on earth and they have to endure suffering here on earth uh, so that they do not have to endure it, you know, in the, you know, next realm, their next, um, in their next uh, future. But here we're trained to, we need to give pain meds. We need to give pain meds now. We need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. Um, not understanding that this is part of their their existence. This is part of their their teaching that of how they must endure suffering. So, um, and then we also need to be taught um, or be more conscious, taught conscious, however you would like to 
understand it, um, for instance, Muslim patients, one of the main things that is ingrained and it's part of our order sets, it's part of a national you know, mandate that people need to have anticoagulation. Um, but part of that anticoagulation is heparin, which is derived um, from pigs. And so anticoagulating someone with a pig product when their religion, you know, as well as you know, Jews, uh, well, depending on, you know, how, um, how conservative they are, this is against what they do, even though it might be life-saving. So this is something that, you know, the Muslims may need to speak with their imam about. We need to be very conscious about this. This isn't something that I can just click on my order set. I need to be very aware of this. So, um, and I don't think that um, we get enough training on this and enough um, awareness to, with this. Does that help answer the question? <laughs> yeah, no, and it does. And in fact, I was, I think what you're also talking about, not only religious and spiritual considerations, but a real uh, sensitivity to, to their culture and the diversity. Again, we have such a diverse population within the United States. And so I'm assuming that most hospitals have to deal with that. And again, might have undesired outcomes or interactions at the end of life because you're just not aware. And um, it sounds like you've, you've had to deal with those, those situations. Yeah. I, I, there's so many things. Uh, the, I can think of times where, you know, uh, Muslim females have, you know, requested that they only have, you know, female providers. And this is something that it's hard to get that accomplished. Um, or certain rituals at end of life need to happen. We, we need to have, you know, this or that. Um, certain things need to be done at end of life um, for them um, in their culture or religion to be able to go on, to be able for whatever their needs are. This is often a struggle, particularly in the ICU where it's already busy. It's already, it's already, you know, a struggle at times we're overwhelmed right now with COVID patients. And so trying to provide the spiritual and emotional care as well, in addition to the medical care is hard. Sounds like it. And I, I am sure that physicians and other nurses and other providers try to do the best they can. Absolutely. Um, for the family, for the patient, for the family. But gosh, oftentimes there's just so much you can do. I wanted to ask you to these terms that we often hear, the, and, and I would like to have you define the difference between palliative care comfort care, and hospice care. I think there's sometimes confusion as to what each of those uh, types of care mean. So enlighten us. I don't know if I can enlighten everyone, but I'll try. <laughs> so hospice care um, actually originated in the early 1980s as uh, care under an, an umbrella of services provided to someone who had a life expectancy of six months or less. It's an insurance benefit um, covered by Medicare, Medicaid, um, insurances uh, for services covering uh, supportive care, uh, both spiritual, emotional, and medical care 
uh, for the uh, six if for someone with a life expectancy of six months or less. This includes um, chaplaincy support, uh, social worker support, um, medical support uh, um, for comfort based care. So um, if you are if you have a terminal oncology diagnosis, you would not receive chemotherapy, but you would receive medications for nausea, for pain, um, uh, that type of medical care. It is does not provide support as a 24-hour, you know, live-in support. Uh, it and these services also provide uh, support for family members, and it provides a grief support for family members after the patient passes. Uh, this can be provided in nursing homes. It can be provided um, at home. Um, it can be provided. There are also um, hospices um, where people live, but there's also additional fees uh, associated with that. Uh, let's see. So I think that covers hospice. Palliative care is similar to hospice care in that it provides um, emotional, spiritual, uh, psychosocial, and medical support, but it's not limited to someone who has six months or less to live. It is uh, for someone with complex illness. Um, the goal is often when someone is diagnosed with a complex illness, such as cancer, that the palliative care team ideally be introduced at the beginning of the illness um, so that they're part of the team. There's actually studies that show that when the palliative care team is part of a patient's care journey, there was a great study uh, a couple of years ago when someone was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer that the group that had the palliative care team um, with the stage four lung cancer group um, at, compared to the stage four lung cancer that didn't have palliative care, the group with the palliative care team actually lived longer with having their symptoms managed. So that good symptom management um, is actually very helpful. So the palliative care team uh, manages symptoms, whether it be pain, nausea, um, also again, pain, nausea, let's see, uh, variety of other symptoms. Um, comfort care is probably what we associate with, uh, you know, right at end of life where we're, we take away all of the curative-based care and just solely focus on managing any symptoms with end of life. That's typically what we associate comfort care with. Um, it's typically a very short period associated with end of life where there really isn't time to initiate hospice. I think that's what we would uh, typically use, what we call that time period in the hospital where someone's been very ill and um, probably would not be able to be able to be discharged, but and we need to initiate comfort care. Okay. Thank you for those different definitions. Um, we're getting close to the end of the program, but I had two more questions. The the first one, in fact, both of them are summarizing what we've talked about today. The first is, when does a physician transition from curative-based care to comfort care? As physicians, as caregivers, as providers, we always have to treat a patient. We It's just a decision of whether or not it's curative-based care 
or comfort-based care. And, and either of those types of care can be aggressive. We tend to see a patient's trajectory changing. And when we see that that patient is actively dying, that's when we try to have those conversations with families and patients. Typically, when the patient is actively dying, we're usually not able to talk with the patient. Um, and that's when we talk with families about changing to comfort care. And then what do you, Dr. Beversdorf, believe is meant by dying with dignity in the ICU? It comes back to your opening statement for this radio program. How do you want to die? How do you want to die? How do you want your loved ones to die? How do you want the last moments of your or your loved one's life to be etched in a memory? There are moments in a patient's trajectory that medical providers know that is no longer if, but when someone will die. And we do not want you or your person to die surrounded by strangers as we break their ribs by doing CPR. But we don't have a choice, um, however you do. When death is imminent, it is far more loving and caring to ensure that that person is not in pain or suffering and for you to be present when they die peacefully. Well said. I want to thank Dr. Jamie Beaverstorf, an internist and board-certified physician at Unity Point Health, for joining me today. If you would like to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website at agingmattersonline.com. And of course, when you visit the site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as you can listen to the podcast. You can go on uh, the main page, and at the bottom of the main page, you can log on to either Apple or Spotify podcasts and listen to all of the uh, broadcasts as well. And also you can subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter, and that way you can receive updates about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. Of course, you can learn about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.